What I'd like to do is um, read a few verses from Luke 15 and then from Galatians 4. And then we'll start thinking about what it looks like to be sons and daughters in the kingdom. And what it looks like to be orphans. I'm going to read very well-known verses, but hopefully um, the Holy Spirit will bring fresh revelation from them. <clears throat> Luke, 15, chapter, Luke chapter 15, verse 11. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples, and he says this, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. I just want to stop at this point. Often we read scripture with knowing the end in mind, so we're not very good at putting ourselves in the moment. When Jesus was saying this parable, when he got to this point, all of the Pharisees and all of the disciples were thinking, yes. That son got what he deserved. He was reckless and he took his inheritance before his time. And then he started starving and had to go feed unclean pigs. And every single one of the people in that audience would be thinking, Jesus is telling us a good story here because this kid has got what he deserves. And then Jesus continued, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate. Let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I served you. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. 
It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And in Galatians 4, verse 4, it says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Isn't the gospel amazing? So often we can reduce the gospel to an issue of morality. We see God as a holy God who came to make bad people good. And some of you in this room may believe that to be the crux of the gospel. But that's not at all what the good news is about. The good news is about a father God who came to make orphans into sons and heirs. See, the gospel is not about an issue of morality. It's about an issue of sonship. Adoption is the highest point of God's redemptive grace. And I think for many of us, we need to get past just having our sins forgiven to understanding that that really wasn't the main aim of the cross. Yes, our sins are forgiven at the cross, but the main aim of the cross was to bring orphans home to their father God. And I find the parable that we read fascinating because it tells us the story of two sons who in reality acted as if they were orphans. And we can read the parable and we can shake our heads because it's so obvious what they did wrong. And yet, if we're really honest, so many of us live our Christian lives from a place of orphan-heartedness rather than a place of sonship. So many of the motivations of our hearts, so many of the um, attitudes of our hearts, so many thoughts that govern our decisions are rooted more in being orphans, if we're honest, than in understanding our sonship and our relationship to a good and loving father. And so what I want to do today, if it's okay with you guys, is just to explore through these verses what it looks like to be sons, what it looks like not to be orphans. Because the Holy Spirit and his adoption plan for us should change everything about the way we live our lives, from the tiniest decisions to the biggest moments of of our lives. Everything should be changed because of our adoption The first thing I want to look at is how adoption transforms our relationship with God. You see in the younger son that he relates to his father as a means to an end. This parable is often called the parable of the prodigal son. And if it's okay with you guys, I won't refer to it as that because I think that name is incorrect. The word prodigal means lavish. It means over the top. And there's only one person in that story who is lavish and over the top, and it's not the son, it's the father. 
And so often when we refer to this parable as the parable of the prodigal son, what we communicate is that being lavish or over the top or abundant is something that displeases God. Whereas in reality, those words are brilliant at describing who our father is because his love and his blessing and his grace and his mercy are not measured or controlled, but are completely lavish and abundant and over the top. And so if it's okay with you guys, I'll refer to the parable as the lost son or the prodigal father, but never the prodigal son. The younger son treats the father as a means to an end. It's really interesting, at the beginning of the story, he essentially voluntarily orphans himself. Because in that culture, if you went to your father and you said to him, give me my inheritance early, what you were saying was, I wish you were dead, it would be better for me for you to be dead because I want the money more than I want you. And so what he does, even though he is a son, is he voluntarily orphans himself so that he can take the money because to him, the father is purely a means to an end. Interestingly, when the younger son returns home, he's not returning because he wants to be reunited with his father. He's returning because he wants to be reunited with food. The father is still his means to an end. And so often we can treat God like he is our means to an end, like a heavenly bank manager. I love Jesus because with Jesus I get him and health. Or with Jesus, I get him and prosperity. Or with Jesus, I get power to minister. Or with Jesus, I get a sense of belonging and family. The problem with treating God as a means to an end is as soon as you take the plus something that you love out of the equation, the father no longer looks so great. I wonder how many of us approach God with a father plus something mentality. Father plus family, father plus health, father plus money, father plus ministry. The, the, younger, the older son also approaches the father with a kind of warped relationship because he sees the father as a master, not as a father. He, he's been busy earning his way into favor, or so he thinks. He doesn't understand that the father has already given him all the favor ever that he could have. And so he's busy earning, earning his points, earning his points. The problem with approaching the father in an attitude of earning favor is that it leads to a sense of entitlement. The son is annoyed at the end. I earned enough favor. You should have given me a party. And so there's this slightly twisted relationship where the older son is busy trying to earn what he already has. And so gets angry when he feels he's not given his due. See, the, the father's response to the older son is provoking because he says to the older son, when the older son has had his rant about how he's not going into the party because he never got what he should have got, the father doesn't say to him, oh, you're, I'm so sorry I never threw you a party. I'm so sorry that... You don't feel like you had enough belongings or enough fun along the way. What he says to him, his first statement, is, My son, you are always with me. 
See, the father recognizes that he is the prize. Both for the younger son, who sees him as a means to an end, and the older son, who sees him as a master to serve, the father knows that actually he is the prize worth pursuing. The beauty of what the Holy Spirit has done in our lives to adopt us as sons and daughters is that he relieves us from this life of either seeing God as a means to an end or serving him as a master that's just this perpetual um, treadmill of trying to earn enough favor. And of course, the Holy Spirit comes and sets us free so that by him we are able to cry out, Abba, Father. The word Abba is a word of intimacy. It's a word that Jesus used, and it was absolutely controversial and offensive when Jesus used it, because it was a word that um, showed closeness, showed intimacy. It was a word that children and adults would say to their fathers as a term of endearment. It was kind of like a daddy word. You said that to your dad. It was a word of belonging. But the beauty of what Jesus has done is that he's opened up not just this this relationship that he has with the Father, but he's opened it up so that we who are adopted in Christ can now approach the Father in exactly the same way of intimacy. The beauty is that the Holy Spirit does this in our hearts. It is by him we cry, Abba, Father, which means that no matter what your past experience of fathers is, you can have as your portion a relationship of closeness to the Father because it's by the Holy Spirit that you enter into intimacy. It is not dependent on what your earthly father or earthly mothers may have been like. It is entirely dependent on the beautiful work of the Spirit in our lives. And the amazing thing is that knowing God as Abba Father leads us into a place of contentment Always, because we're no longer serving God plus something, which means all of our joy and all of our hope and all of our peace is now rooted in the Father alone, and the Father is always with us. So no matter whether the plus something is there or not, it has no bearing on our sense of contentment and joy, for the Father will never leave us. It's the reason why Paul was able to say that he was full of joy and full of peace, rejoicing always, whether he was rich or poor, or whether he was free or locked up in chains, because he knew this. The Father is the prize, and the Father is always with him. The Father is the prize, and the Father is always with us. The Spirit works in our lives so that we are freed Freed to be content always. Freed to never have to earn anything ever again because the Father has already lavished his favor on us. The beautiful work of adoption comes and transforms our relationship not only with the Father but our relationship with the law. The verses that we read in Galatians tell us that God sent his son born under the law to redeem or buy back those of us who were under the law so that we would know adoption as sons. And the verses before Galatians 4 tell us that we were held captive by the law. Literally, we were held in the grip of the law. 
And the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit is that he comes and frees us from the grip of the law so that we are able to live in the wonderful realm of grace, enjoying freedom as sons as sons and daughters. We're no longer enslaved to the law, which is a standard that we can never achieve and a system in which we always stand accused. But we lift it up into the realm of grace to live in freedom and joy. (laughs) We no longer have to pursue our rightness, but we get to press into his rightness. His righteousness. The older son was held captive in the grip of the law. The thing about the law is that it demands two things of us. It demands that we do the right thing. So the older son was busy doing the right thing. He says to the father, I never disobeyed a command that you gave me. The law requires that we do the right thing. But on top of this, the law requires that we be right. What happens when you're held in the grip of the law is that you are unable to let another's sin go free because you are held captive to this notion that you must be right. So when someone wrongs you, you are unable to release them with forgiveness because you would prefer to be right over relationship. And that's the struggle for the older son. He's busy doing the right thing and he's busy being right. So when he sees his brother return, he cannot release him with forgiveness. He cannot extend grace to him because he's held captive in the law, which demands that he not only does the right thing, but he's also right in himself. And so when the father extends grace and forgiveness to the younger son, the older son is disgusted by it. He's angered by the fact that the father would extend forgiveness for the older son is still held captive in the realm of the law. It's interesting that when the older son refers to the younger son who's returned, he can no longer call him brother. He's too angry. Separation has come. And so what he says to the father is, when this son of yours returned, relationship is broken by the law. But the beautiful thing in Hebrews 2 is that it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. The beauty of grace is that it brings us into relationship. The difficulty with living in a place of the law is that it is a place of accusation because you can never achieve its standard. And the thing is that the devil is the ultimate accuser, and so he loves the realm of the law. The realm of the law is built entirely on justice. The realm of the law is one where you get exactly what you deserve. And the reality is, if you fall short of its perfect standards, then what you deserve is penalty, punishment, and death. And so the devil loves the law. 
One of his names is the accuser. And he prowls around in the realm of the law looking for anyone who's trying to justify themselves by their actions because he gets to stand and have a field day with them and accuse and accuse and accuse again. The beauty of grace is that the Father has picked us up from the realm of the law. And he has put us in the realm of the grace, of grace, where you no longer get what you deserve, but you get what the Father wants to give, which is favor and mercy and love in abundance. <laughs> and so if you're living in the realm of grace, when the enemy comes prowling around trying to find something to accuse you with, and when he comes to you and he says, you're a loser, you're a sinner, you're rubbish, you've got nothing to give you can stand for a moment and smile (laughs) point him to the place of the cross where incidentally it was the place of his defeat (laughs) and say I'm sorry I think you're speaking to the wrong person because Jesus took every accusation on himself and buried it in the grave and so the life I live I live in Christ and I stand open to no accusation at all The problem with unforgiveness is this. And this was the difficulty for the older brother. What it does is that it pulls you back from the realm of grace into the realm of law. Because you cannot insist that someone else gets what they deserve without insisting that you get what you deserve too. And so what happens if we become a people of unforgiveness is that we open ourselves up to the enemy's accusations. And there's some of us in this room who are struggling to forgive people for doing horrendous things. No one's negating that bad things have been done. But the reality is, if we insist that all of those sins are paid for by that person, we start insisting that all of our sins are paid for by us. And we open up our hearts and minds to torment by the enemy. And some of you have been struggling with accusation again and again and again. And you feel like your minds are like a war zone constantly being told how rubbish you are and how awful you are and how much of a sinner you are and you don't know how to break free. Live in the realm of grace. Be a people of forgiveness. For forgiveness means that we live in the realm of grace and we no longer stand open to accusation ourselves. Sons are free to live in grace. Orphans stand open to accusation in the law. One more thing on this. I wonder who we sound more like. Whether we sound more like the gracious father or we sound more like the accusing enemy. Have you ever thought what would have happened if the older son found the younger son first? If the younger son had met him on the outskirts of the city instead of his father, how different the story would have been. So many of our churches are better known for what we don't agree with rather than what we do agree with. 
so many of us can stand as we welcome people in at the doors of our churches, filtering those who come in and those who don't, sounding more like accusers than the gracious Father who says, come, 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 no matter what you've done, no matter what you may look like, no matter how deep sin runs in you, come, for there is grace for everybody. There's these amazing verses in Ephesians 4 that talk about, I'll read them to you. Ephesians 4.15 says, Speak the truth in love so that we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So often as Christians, we can read those verses and see them as a green light to sharing with people our dislike of them and then smiling sweetly and saying, but I'm, I'm only saying this truth in love to you. If someone comes up to you and says, can I, can I just take a moment to share the truth in love to you? You're going to be thinking, I want to get away from this conversation right now. We've not used that as a positive But the reality of this verse is that truth is not just an idea. He's a person. And he lives inside of you and me. So when we speak the truth in love to one another, what we should be doing, rather than using it as a green light for criticism, we should be pulling out destiny from one another, pulling out Christ-likeness from one another as we speak the truth in love. Let me encourage you as a community, be a community who speaks the truth in love to one another. And when you're out on the streets, that you speak the truth in love to those you meet. Because the reality is no matter how many people are broken image bearers, they are still image bearers of God. And so there is something of the truth of the person of Christ in them. And what we can do, we have the brilliant privilege of, as Christians of doing, is stepping outside into the world and drawing out Christ-likeness from those we meet, drawing out the gold that God has put in people and those we meet not having this Christian, non-Christian divide, we're not going to encourage any non-Christians because they're all bad that's not true, they're still image bearers no matter how broken and so we get the privilege of digging up gold from them and pulling out their destiny and seeing them shine more and more in the image of the one who made them Let us be a community who speaks the truth in love to one another. Let us be a community who sound more like our gracious father than the accusing enemy. Let us be a community who live in the realm of grace and walk away from the realm of the law. Thirdly, adoption has incredible power in our understanding of honor. When Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians... It was around the time that he was also writing a letter to the Romans and a letter to the people in Ephesus. And in these three letters, he uses the word adoption. These are the only places that he uses the word adoption. And the reason he chooses this word in these letters is because he knows that these places are under Roman jurisdiction. And so their understanding of the word adoption will be through a Roman 
law lens. And he wants that because in Rome, adoption would mean three things. And it's important for us to understand this because it helps us understand what Paul is trying to explain in what God has done for us. The first thing about adoption in Roman law would be that it was irreversible. Once it was done, once you'd worked through the process of adoption, there was no going back. If the father didn't like the son, sorry. Adoption is irreversible, and that person now belongs in your family for all time. The second thing about adoption was that it was a means of bestowing power. Around the time that this letter was written, the emperor Claudius had adopted his son Nero and was working through the process of bestowing on his adopted son all the power of the empire. And in fact, in the last six emperors before that, four of them had transferred their power onto an adopted son. And so the Romans understood this, that if you were a person of power, adoption was a means by which you could bestow your power on the one who you would choose. And thirdly, Adoption was about honor. In ancient times, honor could be gained in one of two ways. One, you could do something amazing, so you could achieve it by, I don't know, by performing some great feat, and then you would be known as a person of honor. But the much, much better way of gaining honor would be to have ascribed honor from your family. Because in in ancient times, whose you were, who you belonged to, was much more important than who you were. So no amount of achieved honor could outweigh the ascribed honor from your family. And so adoption was a means by which you could take someone who was a nobody and had no ascribed honor whatsoever, and you could bestow on them all the honor due your name so that they would become a person of honor. The thing about orphans is that they do not understand ascribed honor. And so orphans are busy trying to achieve honor. They're busy trying to gain significance. They're busy trying to gain acceptance. They're busy trying to work hard to prove themselves so that they're the best preacher or the best prophet or the best businessman so that they cannot celebrate someone else's joy because they're constantly comparing what that looks like towards themselves because they're in this constant hamster wheel of achieving honor. The beauty of sonship is that it frees us from the hamster wheel because the father has adopted us and ascribed all the honor due his name on us. So we never have to work for significance. We never have to work for acceptance. We never have to work to prove our worth because the Father has stamped his seal of approval on us for all time. And so we are literally dripping with honor. We don't need to achieve anymore. Come on. So many of us can be caught up in the lie that we have to achieve some more. So many of us can be caught up in the lie that we still need to prove ourselves. We're still giving in to the fear of man because we somehow still need to win approval and acceptance. 
Adoption frees us from having to work for any honour. For the Father is pleased with us once and for all. Isn't he amazing? (laughs) That he would irreversibly adopt us. That he would adopt us so that he could bestow all the power at work in him to us. And that he would ascribe to us all the honor due his name for all eternity. We get to share his honor. The beautiful thing about what the father did in the parable of the lost son is that he allowed himself to lose honor in the sight of men so that his son would gain honor. The thing about that parable is this. Rebellious sons were to be stoned by the law. So every Pharisee that's listening to Jesus tell the parable is cheering when the younger son is in the pig pen, starving away. They're cheering when he has the audacity to return to the father because they know that Deuteronomy says a rebellious son should be stoned. And so they're listening to the story knowing or thinking they know what's coming. And then they hear that the father is looking for the son. And he sees him while he's still a long way off. The only way the father would stop him a long way off is he, if he had been waiting and watching and waiting and watching and waiting and watching. And eventually he sees the figure of his son and he does what is unthinkable for a Jewish man, which is he raises his robe, which would be embarrassing because you were never to show your legs in public as a grown Jewish man. But he does it because he's going to do something else that you were never to do as a self-respecting Jewish man, which is to run and run and run through the streets of the city because the one thing he's thinking is this... I need to get to my son before my son gets to the city and the people do to him what he deserves. And so the city sees this man. He was known as a man of honor, but is doing this thing that is shameful and dishonorable. He doesn't even seem to care what the community thinks. That's appalling. And they look at him, literally appalled at this man as he totally degrades himself in their eyes. But the one thing the father is thinking is this, I must rescue my son and restore his honor. The father sent his son. And in his son, Jesus, took the shame of the cross where the world looked on disgusted, where the world mocked and the world was appalled. And the entire time in the father's mind was this. I don't care what I look like. I must rescue my children and restore them to honor. Hmm. Last one. Adoption has power to transform our understanding of inheritance. The thing about orphans is that they don't get inheritance. They don't belong to anyone, so they don't get it. 
The younger son was busy trying to grab hold of inheritance as if it was about to disappear. The older son was busy trying to hoard his inheritance as if there wasn't enough to go around. See, the older son wasn't just angry because of the law when the younger son returned. He was also angry because of a matter of inheritance. Because if at the beginning of the story, the father divides his full property into two and gives the younger son one half, when the younger son returns and the robe is put on his back and the ring is put on his finger and the fattened calf is killed, whose inheritance is now being spent? See, we miss something very beautiful if this parable, if we don't see the contrast between the older son and our ultimate older brother, Jesus. Because the beautiful thing that Jesus does is this, where the older son was so angry that the younger son had come in and was now spending his inheritance. Jesus, our older brother, says, come, come, come and share in my inheritance with me. You now get to be heirs of the same kingdom that I am the heir of so that everything that is mine is now yours. Everything that I enjoy, you now get to enjoy. The same relationship of intimacy that I have in the Trinity, you get to have. And every resource, every power available to me is now given to you for I want to share share my inheritance. I love the story of Abraham and Lot. Abraham's the man with all the promises. God's spoken to him that his descendants are going to be like the sand on the seashore and like the stars in the sky. And his nephew Lot is traveling around with him, but at some point they decide there's just not enough room for all of their families and all of their livestock. And so what happens is they decide to part ways, but the reality is Abraham was the older man and he was the one carrying all the promises. So it was his right to choose where he wanted to go. And yet as the man of inheritance, he says to Lot, you pick, you look around, you find the best land that you like, you pick it. There's something about understanding our inheritance in the kingdom, something about understanding the unlimited nature of the resources of the kingdom, something about understanding the promises that God has spoken over us that leads us to a place where we become increasingly generous and increasingly understanding that we are a means of resource to others because what we have is not going to run away. And so we're able to be generous with others. And so Abraham, being secure in his inheritance, is able to say to Lot, you pick the best of the land. He knows it all belongs to him anyway. He's got no insecurity in his inheritance. And so he's able to resource and be generous to the younger man. I think of David and how different he was to Saul as king. David's pinnacle in his fighting career was when he was a young boy when he beat a giant called Goliath. That moment changed everything for his life. That moment put him on the map of Israel. He became famous overnight. That was the battle of his career. Any one of us in that position would be thinking, I love this. I'm famous for this. I don't want anyone else to do it because that would be kind of knock me off top spot, really. 
David's heart is so different, it's so generous, so that we see many years later when he has raised up his army, he raises them up to be giant slayers, so that there's a whole list of them in Chronicles who kill many giants. See, David understood this about his inheritance. He wanted his ceiling to be their platform. He was not busy hoarding what he could do so that he could put his name on the map. He was busy thinking, everything I am given, I want to make it a platform to release future generations to do even more than I have done because he understood this about the kingdom, that it is limitless in resource and someone else's victory is your own victory. So we get to celebrate what everyone does even if they go further than us. The Spirit frees us so that we can enter into an inheritance that is mind-blowing and so that we can deal with that inheritance with generosity and with resourcing in mind. If you're called to be a millionaire, God bless you. That portion of your physical inheritance, you get to share with others to resource kingdom multiplication. If you are someone who's called to be a great prophet or a great teacher or a great evangelist, God bless you. You get to take that physical inheritance and multiply it in those around you so that you will raise up sons and daughters who are much more successful in their ministries than you could ever hope to be. It is the joy of inheritance in the kingdom. And the beauty of the inheritance is that it's not just a future reality but it's a current reality that we get to to press into. Inheritance in the kingdom looks like healing, looks like miraculous resource, looks like joy and peace that make no sense in our circumstances, look like us seeing nations turn to Jesus. Why don't we all stand together for a moment? We're not going to have a long ministry time. We're going to have a crazy fun time this evening. So we'll leave most of the ministry for this evening. But while I've been speaking, some of you have felt the Holy Spirit stirring in you, exposing in you some orphan-heartedness that has governed your decisions, that has motivated how you live your life. And this is a great moment, just with Jesus here, with the Holy Spirit speaking to you to do some business with him. To repent of orphan-heartedness. The word repentance is beautiful because it's not just about saying sorry. It's about allowing the Holy Spirit to come and help you change the way you think. And so you get this moment just now to say, Holy Spirit, I want to change the way I think. Holy Spirit, Spirit of adoption, come and print in my heart and mind so firmly the truth of my sonship in Christ that I never have to live a life that's bound in serving God as a master or seeing him as a means to an end rather than enjoying intimacy with my father. That's never bound to the law, trying to do right and be right and living in unforgiveness whilst the enemy has a field day with me. (laughs) Come and imprint in my heart 
so firmly the truth of my adoption that I never again have to try to prove my worth to people or try to beat someone else in some competition to see that I'm more significant or influential because the point is this, I know I have all the honor and all the approval and all the blessing that I would ever need for the Father has lavished his honor on me. Come and show me the truth of my adoption that I would enter into my inheritance. And I would enter into it with a spirit of generosity and resourcing other to others to run further than I could ever run myself. Holy Spirit, come and rest on our hearts. We love you, Holy Spirit. Spirit of adoption, you are beautiful. Thank you for how you have transformed us. Thank you for the hope with which we get to live now because of what you have done. Jesus, you are our ultimate older brother who is not ashamed to call us brothers despite what we have done. Who is not ashamed to draw us in to the household of God and to share his inheritance with us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father for allowing your name to be held in dishonor, for allowing your son Jesus to go through such a horrific death and you in him on that cross so that we would be restored to being family. We love you, God. You are amazing. You are amazing. Bless us as we go from here. Keep stirring our hearts and minds with the truth of our adoption. Uh And help us be a community who speaks the truth in love, both to one another and to those outside our doors, that we would pull destiny from one another and from those we meet. (laughs) We would see the gold and draw it out. Thank you, Lord.